Today's scripture reading will be in Genesis chapter 35, verses 15, through chapter 36, verse 43. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpha, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan, Aram. And Jacob came to his father, to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Bathamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Bathamath bore Rule, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are, the, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. El- Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Rule, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Canaz. Timna was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Rule, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Timon, Omar, Zepho, Canaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Shobal, Lotan, Zibion, Anah, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the son of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onan. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Ana. He is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Ana, Dishan and Aholabama, the daughter of Ana. These are the sons of Dishan, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Charon. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavon, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in, reigned in Edom, the name of the city being Denhaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. 
Jobab, and Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad the son of Badad, who reigned, uh, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of a city being Abbas. Hadad died, and Samuel of Mazarek reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Balhanan the son of Akbor died, that reigned in his place. Balhanan the son of Akbor died, um, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of a city being Pa. His wife's name was Mehedabal, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Aholabama, Elah, Pinan, Canaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdal, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to the dwelling places in the land of their possession. This is the word of the Lord. Not an easy passage to read, I don't think I need to tell you. And I'll let you know right off the bat that it is not an easy passage to preach. It's a rather long portion of scripture, and it doesn't contain anything that I can tell that is super surprising or flashy. You know, there's nothing real juicy in here that that a guy can latch on to and say, that'll preach. On the contrary, it's all very ordinary. And let's just face it, that's what life is like most of the time, isn't it? It's all very ordinary. It's true that we tend to approach our lives and we look at the calendar in terms of the highlights, you know, the holidays. We we like to leap from Halloween to Thanksgiving to Black Friday to Christmas and so on and so forth. But these special events, let's just face it, are relatively rare. And the bulk of our days are spent in the regular routines, in the very ordinariness of life. So our lives are ordinary, but at the same time, I hope you can see how extraordinarily blessed we, all of us, are. This Thanksgiving week, I encourage all of us to kind of take up the challenge that is presented to us by the writer of that old, wonderful hymn. Uh, Let's all count our blessings and uh, see if we can name them one by one. Let's count our many blessings to see what God has done. And if you do that exercise, if you give yourself to that kind of remembrance, what you'll likely discover is that most of those blessings came to you in the midst of living your very ordinary life. And God is to be praised for it. So today as we scan this uh, rather ordinary chapter and a half, we've taken a big chunk here, I want to point out some some things that we can learn about uh, the facts of life. That's the the title that we take for this sermon. And what I'm getting at is what what are some realities that we can expect in the ordinary living of our lives? But more importantly, as we do that, I'd like for us to be able to identify some of the Lord's blessings that come to us in the midst of those ordinary realities. So technically, this is not a Thanksgiving message. Uh, We uh, did that a week early. Um, But I do expect that by studying this passage, we're going to discover lots of things that we can um, encourage our hearts to rejoice and give thanks to the Lord about. So uh, I'm going to give you a series of facts of life And um, the first of these facts of life are the twin realities of death and life. Death and life. And I do want to just give you some advance notice that this is where we will spend the bulk of our time, most of our time. You might be tempted to think that this uh, point is going to be the whole sermon. And I tell you that ahead of time just because it's actually, I do it for selfish reasons. It's because I don't, I don't like to be thrown off when you get that panicked look in your eye. When you're doing the math about how these points are going to go and you compare that against the clock, 
it throws me off a little bit. So if you could maybe not have that faith, then we could get a lot accomplished. Just know that we're going to spend the bulk of our time in this first point. And then at the end, uh, I'd like to uh, tackle the, the last two points. That's where we're going. First, though, the twin realities of death and life. These are facts of life. Now, the main function of these chapters, if you can remember back a couple of weeks ago to when we first uh, started in on it, the main purpose really is to mark the transition of generations here as the narrative is um, going through uh, the history of the world and the history of God's promises by looking at the main characters um, we're, we're seeing that one of those generations is dying off and a new generation is arising in their place. So right now we are at the end of what you might call the Jacob cycle in the book of Genesis. And very soon the attention is going to shift off of him and on to his children. In particular, the spotlight is going to focus on Joseph, beginning in chapter 37 and then really for the rest of the book. So what we find in this chapter is the typical pattern that we've observed many times already in Genesis, in which we find death notices given for the passing generation and birth notices about the present generation, the generation that is now coming onto the stage. And as I say, before the spotlight shifts entirely to that new generation, the narrator of Genesis typically gives us a genealogy of what we would call, what you could possibly call the non-elect line. In this case, Esau. So we've been focusing on Jacob. We're going to shift now to his children, and especially Joseph. But before we do that, we look at what has become of the non-elect, the non-chosen son. In this case, it's Esau. That's a standard pattern that we've encountered before, and this is true to form here. So really, that's an overview of chapters 35 and 36, and it follows that standard pattern. But as I say, along the way, it teaches us some very important facts of life including the fact that we are going to die. As the young philosopher uh, Siggy Marvin said to Bob Wiley, and there's no way out of it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. Well, it did happen to a number of important people in chapter 35. And we noted the first of these a couple of weeks ago when we first dipped our toe into this chapter. Remember back to verse 8, the family lost Deborah, the dearly loved nurse who had served that clan for two generations. She was first um, the nurse of Rebecca, and then she had um, followed along with the son Jacob. And they buried Deborah under an oak below Bethel. And the tree there that she was buried under was named as a memorial to her. That tree was called Alon Bakuth, or the Oak of Weeping. And just to refresh your memory, I want you to just notice two elements there. I want you to notice the oak and the weeping. And both, it seems to me, are very important when we think about death. When it comes to the death of a loved one, it's important that we would recognize that there is mourning on the first hand. There's mourning. You understand, I know you do, that death constitutes a very sad loss. And so it is, it is right and proper that we would grieve that loss. But notice also that there's a memorial. It's not just... A, you know, weeping, it, there's an oak. So we honor those who have passed on and we remember them fondly. We think of them often. I can't help but think of uh, Christina Kranz, 
whose home going was exactly three months ago. And she was, uh, as you know, a dear sister to Anna and Caleb and Matthias and Timothy and the rest of the family. And she was our beloved sister in Christ too. I expect that we will never stop grieving her death, nor will her family. And the, the memory of Christina is never going to fade. Like Deborah, she was a godly nurse, and I was very thrilled to read in the news today, or a couple days ago, that she was posthumously uh, given the Daisy Award at Noyes Hospital, uh, which is a, an award that's given for extraordinary skill and care in nursing. And that's exactly as it should be. The reality of death leads us to weep and to remember. And there's a, another significant death listed at the very end of chapter 35. Look there with me. This is the death of Isaac, the, the patriarch. It says that he breathed his last and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, which I think is uh, putting it mildly. He was 180 years old. And then it says, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, out of all the patriarchs, Isaac is the one um, that has the least amount that's written about him. You know, he's the one that we know the least about. He seems to have lived a much quieter, simpler life. Spiritually speaking, uh, we know from the little that we do know, we know that he too had his ups and downs. When we last left him, way back in chapter 28, Isaac had blessed his son Jacob, but he had done so reluctantly. He was trying not to bless Jacob, even though he knew the word of God that uh, the blessing was to go to the younger and not the older. That Jacob was the chosen one rather than Esau. Still Isaac, in his deceitful ways, tried to do a bit of a workaround but we discovered, didn't we, that Jacob's ability to deceive was even uh, stronger and greater than his father's ability to deceive. And more importantly, what we saw is that God in his sovereignty guaranteed that the promises would come to fruition. He was the one that made these promises. He was the one that had selected the recipients of these promises. And so God was going to guarantee that Jacob would be blessed. And if you remember that blessing that Isaac gave to his son, uh, this is way back in uh, Genesis 28, verse 4, he said, May God give you the blessing of Abraham and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And what's interesting is that that language matches with the language of verse 27 here in the present chapter. And that, that verse lets us know that in coming back to his father's land, he's, he's coming back to Abraham's land. He's coming back to the land uh, that the Lord is talking about, the land that is promised. And so Jacob now has come full circle. All of his meanderings and spiritual wanderings, he has now come full circle and his sojournings are mostly finished. And the Lord is being faithful to fulfill his promises. So Jacob's return for his father's death and, and burial are full of spiritual significance. But there, there's also relational significance that I want you to notice. I, I love this very last sentence of chapter 35. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, of course, giving a loved one a proper and an honorable burial is a responsibility that that uh, family has and that members of that family must undertake. So these boys are doing their duty when they come together to bury their father and settle all of his affairs. But it's it's so much more than this. You can't just look at that verse and think that it's all duty. They've come together... As, as brothers that have a long history of deep division. It goes back to the, the days in the womb uh, 
when they were at each other's heels. It wasn't too awful long ago, you'll remember, that Esau was vowing to kill his brother. And the only thing that was stopping him from doing that was that you know, his father was sick and elderly and it was looking like this duty to bury him was forthcoming. Now, the, the Lord had been very gracious to give Isaac another couple of decades of life past that point, And that was time enough for the Lord to work in these boys and bring them to the point where they can reconcile. Such that when they finally do bury their father, they're doing it together not out of duty, but out of true fraternity. It's a beautiful thing to witness. And once again, it's the, it's the grace of God. God is to be praised when something like that can happen. Now, as you know, one of my duties as a pastor is to officiate at funeral services. And a, you know, a number of times, actually I think a disproportionate amount of times, I've done that to folks that I don't know. And so I'm just meeting some of these families for the first time in the midst of their grief. And over the years, I've been involved in a number of families where it's, it's very clear, it becomes painfully obvious and very quickly into things, that there is deep division in this family. There's people that we don't talk about. Uh, there's issues that are looming large. And perhaps it's the deceased person that has kind of been the glue holding this family together. And uh, it's interesting to observe all of this happening. It, it's sad, but it's also um, interesting um, as a study of human beings. But at various times, you'll hear various fam family members around the time of the funeral and the visitation, um, they'll voice their intentions to you know, from this point forward to, to get closer as a family. You know, they want to get their past uh, differences behind them and they want to do so for the sake of their mom or their dad. And, and they, they desire to truly love one another moving forward. People, th that's, their, that's their voiced intention. Well, I've also been around long enough to know that, that those good intentions practically never happen. It never materializes. You know, the, the ceasefire expires and typically around the time of the reading of the will. It's just uncanny how that happens. And I've realized over the years that it is a rare gift indeed. It's a grace of God when a family is truly unified, when a family can even grieve together and work together in order to honor their deceased siblings or parents. And likewise, as I said, it's a testimony to the grace of God and to the work of God in their lives that Jacob and Esau are truly unified when they bury their dear father. Um, the blessing of God, when you're, when you're thinking about how the Lord has richly blessed you, and no doubt you'll say things like family, and friends, but I want you to just dig a little deeper and recognize that that is not your own doing. That, that is not an easy and a, a natural and a normal thing. No, the natural and the normal thing is for us to let our conflict uh, rule the day and for us to, uh, to deepen these, these uh, divisions that always threaten all of our relationships. If you can thank God for your family, then at the same time you can thank God for his work in your heart and in other people's heart to help you to forgive each other and to help you cover over in love a multitude of sins. God is to receive all of the glory for that. So we've talked about the first death and the last death mentioned in chapter 35. Now let's turn to look at the death notice recorded in verses 16 to 20. And I've saved the, the worst for last, the saddest, I guess, for last. We learn here that Rachel, who is the love of Jacob's life, dies while giving birth. Here are the details. Look at verse 16. 
It says, while they were on the way to Bethlehem, Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. Now, you can't read something like that in the book of Genesis without thinking about the larger context, without immediately being reminded of Genesis chapter 3, where God brings a curse upon the earth because of sin and because of the disobedience of Adam. The curse that God brings as it pertains to women was as follows. God said to her, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So, you can ask yourself, why is there such a thing as hard labor? How is it possible that some women actually die while they're giving birth? And there's a one-word answer. Sin. It's because of the fall. It's because of the curse. You know, the wages of sin is death. And as we saw way back then when we studied Genesis chapter 3, um, what God speaks here to Eve is a, is a sort of generalized curse, okay? So rather than detailing all of the specifics of what this is going to look like, uh, God instead gives kind of a general word about childbearing. And we know that that curse includes so many other things related to uh, the conception and the bearing of children, the raising of children. Uh, that seems cursed too, doesn't it? So this, this curse in Genesis 3 presents more of a summary rather than all of the specifics. But in Rachel's case, here she finds herself smack dab in the center of that curse. You, you'll recall that she had struggled for many years with infertility. And the fact that she was pregnant at all was a testimony to the grace of God. And here she is, pregnant for a second time, and it's a miracle. Actually, it's an answer to her prayer. Her prayer, by the way, was in the form of a young man named Joseph, who maybe at this point is somewhere between the ages of 14 and 17. No doubt he's uh, eating them out of you know, tent and home. And if you can remember all the way back to chapter 30, verse 24, Rachel named this newborn baby, that first one, she named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. That's what Joseph's name meant. That's what his life was. It was a prayer that God would add to Joseph another son. Now, in her intense pain on her deathbed, Rachel's midwife hopes to encourage her with the knowledge that God has indeed heard her prayer. The nurse says, Do not fear, for you have another son. Answered prayer. But it's very difficult for Rachel to be comforted at this point because her life is slipping away. Listen to how the narrator expresses this in verse 18. This is very interesting, I think. He says, As her soul was departing, and then he adds the parenthetical explanation, just so that we would know what he's talking about. She was dying. So he's using, he's using uh, this phrase to describe this fact of life of death in, um, you know, it's a much more beautiful phrase than to just say that she was dying. But it also helps us understand something about humanity. So what happens when a person dies is that their soul departs from them. There are, as you likely know, two constituents of our humanity. We are body and soul. And our bodies are material, and therefore they're mortal. And our souls are immaterial. There, there's nothing that you can, like, there's no physicality, you can't latch onto them. And therefore, they are immortal. They will live and exist forever. So when a person dies, we commit their bodies to the ground, but their souls, which have departed, we commit into the Lord's hand. 
And what's going on there in death is not natural. Let's just put it that way. Okay, there's, there's a separation between our body and our soul, our two, the two parts that make us who we are. And that separation is not natural. It is uncomfortable, if we could put it that way. It's a bit like when you hear a, a particular combination of notes on the piano. Like when you, when you play a fourth or a seventh a little too long. You don't even need to know music theory to know and to feel when you hear that, that something is not right. And you can feel your blood pressure rise. You can, you can feel the, the zits start breaking out on your face until that sound resolves on the tonic and everything is, is right again. Well, look, this is what happens at death. There's this unnatural division between body and soul, and that is just begging, that's just crying out for some kind of future resolution. It's crying out for a future reunification so that we will be whole. I'll just leave that thought with you. It's a beautiful thought. And as she is dying, Rachel names the son that the Lord has given to her. She calls him Ben-Onai, which very likely means son of my sorrow. There's some different interpretations of what this could possibly mean, but I think the context uh, supports this understanding of that name, son of my sorrow. And let's face it, that's a pretty bleak name to name a kid. I, I was tempted at this point in my sermon to give you some examples of English names that are also very bleak, names that mean sadness and sorrow and despair, but I thought, no, I better, I'll get in trouble if I do that. Um, with my luck, there'll be a visitor uh, who has that name, and I'll be here saying, that's a really bleak name. So we have names like that too. Let me just leave it at that. But it's a pretty good indication, isn't it, of where Rachel's head is at the time. But I also want you to notice where Jacob's head is at. No doubt he's mourning. Okay, He's just lost his dearest wife. And furthermore, we see him memorializing her. So he's burying her and setting up a pillar for a headstone. That pillar, by the way, uh, endures for a long time, at least to the time of, of the, the writing of Genesis. So no doubt Jacob's experiencing all of the pain and all of the sorrow that accompanies this particular fact of life. But I can't help but see him rejoicing in another fact of life, which is simply the fact of life. In this world, not only do we experience death, but wonder of wonders, we get to experience life. This might not just seem, that, that might not strike you as a big deal. It, it might just seem to you when I say that, yeah, there's life in addition to death, that might just sound to you like the necessary yang to the yin of death. But you need to understand that life is neither necessary or guaranteed. Rather, when it occurs, if it occurs, it's pure grace on the part of God. And it calls forth our profoundest gratitude. Again, we've got to be reminded of the, the earliest chapters of Genesis for context here. Just so we don't take life for granted, recognize and remember that when God gave the commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, he gave this dire warning. He said, lest you die. He says, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Death is the thing that is sure whenever sin is involved. But actually, we don't find Adam and Eve keeling over on the spot where they bite into the apple. Instead, we read that Adam named his wife Eve, and this was an act of faith, because she would be mother of all the living. 
And then we read on to discover that Eve conceives and gives birth to a son, and then to another son, and then to a bunch more children. And what do we conclude in all of this? Ought we to conclude that God is a liar? That he just kind of threatens big, that when, but when push comes to shove, he, he's a nice guy and he never really makes good on his threat? No. God is not a liar. God is not indulgent. God is gracious. We conclude that God is the giver of life and that in doing so, he's demonstrating his unbelievable grace and mercy towards sinners. And because of the grace of God, what we discover throughout the storyline of Scripture, and we discover this, don't we, even in our own experience, that life is always emerging out of death. We see time and time again, just like we've sung, that God's plan is still to prosper. He's not forgotten us. As Rachel's life is slipping away, her son's life is emerging. That's a, that's a beautiful picture. And this son that's emerging is son number 12, as the text goes on to say, making a complete set. These 12 tribes are going to become, each of them, great nations. And together, the nation of Israel, tribes of, of one great nation. And down through the history of this nation, because of their own sin and their own disobedience, they're going to go into exile. They're going to, at times, face annihilation. There's going to be death warrants put out for their firstborn sons in an effort to do some genocide, some ethnic cleansing. And it's, it's going to look, at many points in the history of Israel, like they're headed inexorably to death and to destruction. But because of the grace of God, life is going to emerge instead. A shoot is going to spring out of a stump that you thought was dead and gone. Just when Israel is at its lowest point, deep in sorrow, facing death, another woman is going to be on her way to Ephrath, pregnant. But this woman actually will make it all the way to Bethlehem, and there she's going to give birth to a son who will be hope for that nation. And indeed, is going to be hope for the entire world who will be the epitome of light and life to all who believe in him. And eventually, this, this boy, when he becomes a man, will also die. Not because he was a sinner and, and needed to die, but because he was bearing sin in the place of sinners like, like, we, like us. And this man would also be buried. But, but just when his disciples' sorrow was the deepest, on the third day, you know, when the, when the grave was confident enough to start doing a little bit of a victory dance, life emerged out of death. Friends, do you understand what the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ means? It means that when it comes to the facts of life pertaining to death and life, life is the thing that persists, even though life is the, not the thing that was necessary and expected in the first thing, in the first place, life is the part of that equation that persists into eternity. It means that in the contest between sorrow and glory, glory is the one that's going to last. Indeed, indeed, as we read in Scripture, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And I, I know that many of you, even right now, are grieving the loss of loved ones whether that loss occurred recently or within the last year, or whether it occurred a long time ago and, and the pain is still fresh and raw. And I understand that when the holidays come around, it's often that that's when we feel the sting of that pain and that death most acutely. 
right? We have so many memories that are attached to special occasions that we can't help but see that, that person's face time and time again when we're, you know, looking at our mental slideshows. And, and then there's an empty seat at your Thanksgiving table that is just glaringly obvious. You know, um, our family spent last Thanksgiving with the Anglers, and uh, Carlene prepared the most delicious meal, and we stuffed ourselves to the gills, and then we laughed as we looked at old photographs that depicted Carlene's hair as bright red as Jonathan's. And this year, I haven't been able to think about Thanksgiving even once without a stab of pain. So I'm not pretending that any of this is easy. Death sucks. And if you, in case you're wondering if there was a maybe a more delicate, appropriate way for me to say that, there wasn't. It does. And it, it seems to be relentless, death's attack and its presence. Just a couple of days ago, Rob Wilson sent us an email to let us know about the passing of a couple of dearly loved men in our community. On Wednesday night, Chris DeBarrow lost her uh, stepbrother in an accident, and death is just assaulting us and assailing us from every side. And by the way, can I just say this as an aside? This is all the more reason to deal tenderly with people. People are hurting deeply. Be be sensitive. Weep with those who are weeping, Scripture commands us. And don't always be flippant and assume that people share your joyful outlook and expectations for the season. For, for many people, this Thursday is the day that's going to be black, not Friday. For many other people, their, their Christmases are not going to be white. They're going to be blue. But let's take a cue from Jacob. Because at the end of verse 18, we find Jacob doing you know, what we often find him doing, which is renaming things. And at first glance, it might seem like a jerky thing to do, you know, to erase a name that your wife gave to the child that she died giving birth to. But notice that he doesn't completely erase it. He just makes a minor adjustment to it, which which turns out to be a major adjustment to the meaning. The name that Rachel gave to this boy, is, it's too dark, let's just face it. it. It highlights the sorrow. It draws attention to the death. Instead, it seems to me that Jacob wants to draw attention to the life, to the glory, to the hope that is represented by this boy. And so he calls him Benjamin which means son of my right hand. And that's a, that's a good name. That's a strong name. That's a name that points us not backwards to death, but forwards to resurrection and to ascension. And this ought to be our same orientation as we are faced with the, the facts of life, that there is death and there is life. Friends, focus on the fact that it is life that lasts. Glory is going to have the last word, not sorrow. One day soon, death itself is going to die, and there's going to be no one to mourn that. And the grave itself is going to be buried. And for this, God deserves our highest praise and thanks. Now this is the, this is the part where we turn briefly to Point number two, to a second set of facts of life. That is sin and judgment. Look with me in uh, verse 22. There was another Benjamin famously said that only two things are inevitable, death and taxes. But frankly, Franklin is wrong. There's many more facts of life. There are way more than just two inevitable things. 
sin is an inevitable thing. And as long as there are people dying and people being born, there will always be sin. The psalmist really is speaking on all of our behalves when he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. That's not talking about her sin around, around the circumstances of his conception. No, that's a reference to his nature that is imparted to him and to us by virtue of the fact that we are born in Adam, that we have flesh. You don't have to live very long either before the sin that's in your heart by nature becomes sin indeed. Likewise, we we never progress very far at all in the text of Genesis before we're confronted with yet more sin. And so we read this little tidbit in verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. (sighs) Mercifully, those are all of the details that were given. So we're not even exactly sure what motivated this despicable act, this unspeakable evil. This incredibly dishonoring act, you know, to cuckold your own father. Perhaps this was driven purely by Reuben's lust, but it's also possible that he did this in order to dishonor Bilhah, who's Rachel's maidservant, so that she wouldn't become the favorite wife now that Rachel's gone. So that actually his own mother, Leah, might finally have the place of prominence. Maybe, it was, maybe that's what motivated it. It's also possible that this was sort of a power move to wrest the leadership of the family away from his father. At the end of the day, we're not sure why, but we are sure what, and it is disgusting. It's grievous sin. What was Jacob's response? Well, I suppose we need to, to break this up a tiny bit. We need to ask, what was his immediate response and what was his ultimate response? In the immediate aftermath, there's basically no response, you'll see. We simply read, and Israel heard of it. Nothing else. And that seems to fit Jacob's character, isn't it? We, we've come to expect this sort of passive response in the face of egregious sin. But that is not his ultimate response. And to get that, we have to take a, a sneak peek into chapter 49, where Jacob blesses each of his sons at the end of his life and typically the way that it you know, naturally works is that the oldest boys get the lion's share of the blessing. But to Reuben he says this, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, He went up to my couch. That's his ultimate response. And likewise, he says to Simeon and Levi, who headed up the slaughter at Shechem, you'll remember, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory be, uh, or my glory be no, sorry, be no joined to their company. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. No blessing. Only cursing. And, it, and it's directly in response to their unrepentant sin. And so Jacob skips over them when he's handing out the blessing, and the blessing comes to the the lion's share of the blessing comes to the next in line, which is Judah. Now at the time, think about these older boys. They they may have thought that they were getting away with their sin, but make no mistake, Jacob heard 
And he knew and he remembered. At the same time, there may be some, some of you here today who are sinning and in a very willful, deliberate sort of a way. Perhaps you're sinning egregiously. You would be mortified to know if, we, if the rest of us knew the precise ways in which you were sinning. And maybe you're thinking that you're getting away with it. You might even think that your thoughts or your deeds can't be that bad, or if they were, God would have you know, struck you immediately with lightning. But you need to understand that God sees, and God knows, and God remembers. He will not be mocked. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Don't think of his present silence, you should never interpret that as an endorsement of, of who you are and what you're doing. That would be a fatal mistake. I mean that literally. It would be fatal. You will perish in your sins. Rather, here's what you should think about the Lord's silence. Interpret that as his patient kindness towards you. And his kindness is designed to lead you to repentance. You ought to confess your sin. You ought to cast yourself on the mercy of God. The, the, the good news is if you do that, he will save you. He will, through the blood of, of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins can be fully forgiven, past, present, future, fully forgiven. You will be spared his wrath. His eternal anger. And, and you know what you'll receive instead? Eternal life. Glory. Come to Christ today. What on earth are you waiting for? You're, you're heaping up coals of destruction on your head. You're heaping up wrath. Now if the Spirit is working in your life and you want to know more about how you can confess and repent and find mercy in Christ, then there's going to be folks up here on the front pew in just a couple of minutes who would love to point you to Jesus. But before they come, and before we sing a closing song, let's just look really quickly at a third and final set of facts of life, and that has to do with the church and the world. Now, you see what I've done here? It's, it's actually pretty brilliant, if I do say so myself. I've only left the tiniest amount of time to deal with chapter 36. So I won't have to struggle with all of these names. I can just summarize. If you haven't noticed already, there's a strong distinction between Jacob and Esau. And it's got nothing to do with who they are inherently. It doesn't have anything to do with their own character and their behavior. It has everything to do with the sovereign purposes of God. You know, Jacob, God has loved and chosen. Esau, on the contrary, he has not. And so the bulk of the book of Genesis and the Old Testament focuses on the people that God has chosen. They, they focus on his people. However, as I said at the beginning, it is customary for the narrator to tell us a little bit about the unchosen line, the unelect line, however you'd like to put that. And that's what we have in chapter 38. It's an account of the generations of Esau and all of the tribes and clans and nations and kings that sprung from him. And this is especially interesting, I think, if you were an ancient Israelite and you wanted to know um, a lot more of the origins of the history of the people who were your neighbors, the Edomites, and, and the Israelites and the Edomites will be interacting with each other, for better or worse, o over a long period of time. So that's interesting to know where these people came from and to recognize as one of the prophets uh, would encourage them, you're actually brothers, you two nations. And so you ought to deal um, in appropriate ways. But um, the first thing that you can just notice here 
and maybe this is obvious to you, maybe I don't need to spend my time telling you, but the names of the nations are actually the names of the brothers. Another name for Esau was Edom, and that name means red. And then God had given Jacob the new name of Israel, and the nations that bore their names were bearing their names. They were the figureheads that gave rise to these nations. Now, there's lots of differences between these brothers and therefore between the nations that we discover in, in chapter 36. For one, Jacob is concerned to stay within the boundaries of the promised land. Jacob, on the other hand, like Lot before him, separates and he chooses to live away from the blessing and from the people of God. Furthermore, Jacob... He decided and he determined not to be yoked together with unbelievers, if we could put it that way. And Esau, as you can tell from the text, took many wives. And he took them all from the Canaanites, which means that they had a terrible influence on him and the generations to come. But I hope that you also see some similarities between these men and the nations that come from them. Both Jacob and Esau both have an incredible amount of people and an unbelievable amount of possessions. So much so that verse 7 tells us that 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 situation is not sustainable. They have to separate. And the only explanation for this, as we have seen, is that the Lord had blessed them both that God had been incredibly generous to both brothers and their offspring. Another similarity is that both brothers produce royalty. So in verses 15 and following of chapter 36, we learn about the chiefs of Edom, and also in verses 31 and following, we we learn about the, the men who were kings over that nation. Now wait a minute. Hang with me here for a second. They have kings? Is there nothing special about the promises of God? God promised Jacob people and nations and blessings and prosperity. God promised that kings would come from Jacob. How come Esau gets all of that stuff too? And how come Esau gets all of that stuff sooner? Look at verse 31. It says that kings reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over Israel. And you're thinking, no fair. That's not fair. Why does it seem like the world is just as well off and often, why does it seem like the world is better off than the church, than the people of God? And brothers and sisters, I don't have the answers. I don't have all of them, but I do... I do know this, that that is all that the world has. And everything that they have will one day be taken away from them. And here's the one thing that they don't have, God himself. The heart of God's promises to his people is this, I will be their God and they will be my people, a people for my own possession. You know, the the best that Black Friday has to offer, and even if you stack up all that Black Friday has to offer, it doesn't even come to the comparison. It doesn't even show up for the comparison between what it means to have God as your God and what what it means to be declared one of his people. And, And think about this. If God is promising you something that appears like it's something that he kind of just gives away to the world, maybe you've grossly underestimated the promise. And what I mean is this. You've got to remember that these promises that God has given to these patriarchs and to us are very great and precious promises. So when God says land, that he's going to give you land, he must not ultimately mean some real estate in the Middle East. He he gives that to Edom and to 
to Esau without making any kind of promises to them. He must be something, speaking about something way more wonderful and glorious than that. He must be thinking about something like, I don't know, the new heavens and the new earth. When, when the Lord asks you what, to imagine what it would be to, to live under a king, a king that would come from your own loins, he must mean something greater than what Edom has. They've got kings. He must even mean something greater than David, which is the greatest that Israel ever knew. He must be talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, these are your promises. They come to you. These are your realities. These are the facts of your life. These are the facts of your eternal life. So I would strongly encourage you, especially as this season, this Christmas season comes upon, upon us and everything that the world has to offer just seems so alluring and so attractive. Put all of your hope and trust and pursue with all of your life these promises. And as the song instructs us let us stand as people of the promise let us fix our eyes on him who's our soul's reward till the race is finished and the work is done let's walk by faith and not by sight amen